John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed Omnibus Addenda Volume 28 Entry 075.2P0308 Certificate number 24524 As slow as possible This is the John Cage piece being played on a church organ in Germany at such stultifyingly uh, laid-back speeds that it won't the, finish for centuries. The chord only changes every six years or something. Yes, and the person playing really gets stiff fingers because they just have to... <laughs> I think there's some kind of a pulley system or something when they need to change chords. They just put a brick down on the gas pedal and and leave it. Yeah, I don't know if organs have a gas pedal, but definitely the equivalent of that. Uh, we heard not long ago from a listener named... Luke, who said uh, with there was a chord change coming up. Let me Exciting. see what were the what's the schedule. Uh, and he realized there's like a ticket lottery, and he just lives a few hours away. I guess Luke is in Deutschland. Now I can't remember Frankfurt. I, I'm not sure. Not so far away, and uh, and we were excited because we thought, oh, maybe uh, maybe an omnibus listener is going to actually be there in the church. I remember this. This it week. was so long. It was like six years ago when this happened, when we got this email from Luke. Yeah, and the last chord change was in was to a to a G sharp and an E, and it was late. It was in September of two thousand twenty. Oh, pretty the, recently. The recording's not going to. Oh, it's not as long as I thought. It will be done by twenty seventy one. Uh, I could conceivably be alive, although I'll be 97 years old. Or is that just the next? Is that just the next few chords? No, it's going to no. last longer than that, right? Yeah, it says it's going to uh, it's going to last for 639 more oh, okay. years. So these are we just have a we just have 50 more years full of projected chord changes here. So we mentioned Luke on the addenda, and he I guess recently became a Patreon supporter and listened back to that old show and gave us the full plan. Uh, they did not get tickets to the lottery. Oh, he was. Oh, it's it, a big. Sh- it's a big sellout, huh? I guess everybody <laughs> gets there. Two minutes later, the chord changes and they all file out. Yeah. Do you do you call out for your favorites? Are you like G sharp? I want to hear a G sharp. 
Uh, he is in Berlin. It's two hours. So he didn't want to drive two hours to Halberstadt and just hope they could, you know, wangle admission or right. pay off a bouncer. Sure, there's a line around the block. Whatever you got. Yeah, who knows? Maybe, you know. Pay get, off a priest. Yeah, offer a BJ to some roadie. Or priest. Uh and at the time we were discussing it on that in late September of 2020, I said, um, well, he won't have to wait as long for the next change because it's coming up on February 5th, 2022. And Luke happened to look at that on February 4th, 2022, earlier this month. Oh, wow. And realized, oh, I could go again. But he um, he, he was just coming off a family thing and decided he did not want to drive two hours to Halberstadt again at the last minute. So he has, again, missed his last chance. Although this one, by the way, is just a release. Oh. We're, we're going to release. Oh, no, no, no. The E continues playing. The G sharp gets released. And then there will be nothing for two more years. He's got he's to wait till February of 2024 when we, uh, when we hear a D. You know, I don't know if I asked during the original show, but do they use this church for anything else? No. In fact, it, my memory is it's a former church. It's Sanct Bercardi Church. But no one in the neighborhood wants to, like, repurpose it as a youth center or something? Like, will this count? Will the John Cage ca- uh, uh, Orchestra, or will, will the composition count if they turn the volume way down so that they can have Bible study in the basement or an AA meeting if or modernist something? music falls in a forest... <laughs> and no one is there to hear it. I mean, the thing is, if you turn all the way down, it turns into a different John Cage piece. Oh, sure. Of course. There it is. That's the problem. That's the problem. It's a medley. If I remember right, the building is no longer used, but it still has an organ. So if you're going to use it for anything else, you have to put up with a, a constant at the moment, <clears throat> at the moment, E chord playing on this organ. What am I seeing here? When it says, when it says a G sharp and then there's a little subscript three or a four or a five. What what is that telling me? That's not a chord notation. Is is it saying it's it's not saying it's some kind of a, a, a an interval? It's not a third or a fourth or a fifth chord, right? The current chord will play for. Oh, that G that G sharp is going to play for two thousand five hundred and twenty seven days. No, no, no. Sorry, the E will. Well, uh, having watched the video. The pipe organ, you normally think of a pipe organ as filling a whole room. This is a very simple device, and when it changes a chord, it actually, they actually put new pipes in. So it's not like a, it's not a keyboard. No, it's just the notes uh, as represented by different sizes of pipe. So the weights continue to hold down the pedal, and they switch out the pipe to change the note. Yeah, it's just a bellows providing constant air, and then they move the pipes. So whatever the notation is, you're, you're, you think it's that that represents the octave. I think so. now that I look at it again, I think these are not chords at all. I think those are just single notes that are being played. And if it's a four, it's an octave up from the ones that are a three. Uh, right. And that would make sense if it was everything was centered around three, four, and five. Sure. Uh, well, if, there if it's we a have typical it. eighty-eight key keyboard, which I guess we're imagining. It would be. And looking at the church, it's one of those German forest chapels that would not be very good for an AA meeting. It's just a little, you know, it's a it's an old forest chapel that you would go go into if you were a local hunter. I, mean, I think on the original show we talked about how for, it had been maybe deconsecrated when Napoleon invaded and then it had been a stable and a warehouse and all kinds of things for many years. 
Um, I think now it's just around because it's a it's a historical building. Right. It's there, in other words. And every couple of years, there's a pipe change, and they then move some pipes, and there were, <laughs> and then there was applause. We I, we watched the video. Good work. Different pipe. Um, so yeah, Luke, please don't forget in 2024 to head over to Halberstadt. Entry 654.IS4316. Certificate number 34332. The International Cable Protection Committee. Also an old show, but... This has been in the news undersea recently. Undersea cables have been in the news. Do you, do, what did you see? Did you see the thing about the... Um, the uh, the volcanic eruption in the South Pacific in severed Tong- some Tongan cables, right? Yeah, Tonga is apparently off the grid. I mean, not entirely, uh, their, but their lone fiber optic undersea cable was severed, which means the whole island is now operating off of... Uh, One a, guy's cell phone? It's a, it's a satellite dish now. Right. Everybody's got... There's a single 2G wireless connection via satellite. Bummer. So if you've ever seen like a, a you know, an airliner or a cruise ship try to run off one of those, now imagine a whole nation <laughs> trying to use one of those. It's great. They they get a they get a break from the internet. They don't have to they don't have to doom scroll anymore. They can they can enjoy uh, their their lives. But they had a terrible natural disaster. So the doom scrolling is now real. They <laughs> they don't have to dread. Something awful happening. It just happened. In the days following the eruption, it like wasn't clear how Tonga was doing. Oh, right. They were out of touch. Because huh? it was uh, it was so hard to communicate. Apparently, it's going to take mm, still like, when was that? That was in January? Mm-hmm. It, it's gonna, it was, it's going to take a total of months to repair the cable. It's The, the break is 23 miles offshore. Oh, boy. You got to run a lot of cable to get out. It's easy to find out where it is, I guess, because you can just send a signal. See how long it takes to bounce back? How long it takes to bounce back, and you know the speed of light. Then you send a cable repair boat um, that like hooks onto the cable, retrieves the broken end, and rejoins it to fresh cable. But you got to get a cable repair boat out there. Got to get, yeah, and it's going to be there sometime between yeah. nine a.m. and ten p.m. on Wednesday or Thursday. But you have to be there. They can't do it unless you're unless the homeowner is there. It actually does take time to get a boat there because there's only so many of them, and the nearest one is in New Guinea, three thousand right. miles away. Um, as we will discuss on a forthcoming omnibus, the South Pacific is. Is big and the islands are far apart. And everything you need is in New Guinea, unless you live in New Guinea, in which case what you're looking for is in Tonga. It's there like are, having two separate houses. The there's a there's enough of these ships that I mean it's a constant work. There are 200 such repairs happening every year, but it's usually just a fishing boat. Sharks keep chewing on them. <laughs> <laughs> we, as we learned during the show, it wasn't sharks, right? It's it's usually fishing boats or anchors or. I read Something. the other day that, or just today, that there was a, sh- a shark fatality in Australia. To the shark or from the shark? From the shark. The shark bit a person, surfer in half, or a swimmer, I guess. Bit him. Bit him. Taboo bitums. I, w- I was just reading an analysis of Jaws. I think this is going to be in the omnibus at some point, so mm-hmm. maybe I shouldn't give a too much of a preview to our premium subscribers here. <laughs> but uh, just uh, making the point that Jaws, you know, as it opens the age of the big box office smash summer movie in 75 or whatever it was, um, it also begins a period of kind of political cowardice. 
no longer do Hollywood movies try to say anything about America. In Jaws, what you have is you have the the macho conservative guy, right? Robert Shaw gets eaten. Uh, the the Jewish leftist young intellectual Richard Dreyfus marginalized, which means it's the centrist, the good everyman cop, mm-hmm. the good everyman cop, Roy as we Scheider. Say. Well, and also wait, there was the mayor who was a callow. Uh, Capitalist. That's the other thing. The movie really has no villain. I mean, the shark is apolitical, and the mayor just wants to open the beaches. So there's not really anything to say about society there. Anyway, the point of this, I think it's Peter Viskin's analysis of the movie, which is just that Jaws is kind of the beginning of craven centrism driving American movies, which is not true of Chinatown or the Godfather movies. Or something I feel like, like you that. can take a moral stand against the movie Porky's and. <laughs> Police Academy 2 is against, uh, you know, there's always like a bad uh, drill sergeant that you want to get, a, you want to be against. Was, police, was the Police Academy mission to Moscow one? Was that like pro-world peace? I'm not sure I saw that one. I'm not sure I did. Spies either. Like Us? You know, that was... What's the point of Spies Like Us except except a, a catchy wing song? Uh, well, it was, to, it was to try and get um, Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase... Out of their not funny years and give them an opportunity to be funny again, and it failed miserably at that. And to fund their coke habits. Yes. Thank you, Kurt, for pointing out that the uh, the undersea cables were some of the biggest news of the month. Entry five four eight ex three nine two five. Certificate number five zero eight five five. The Great Bell of Damazetti. Also an older show, but in this case, because I think I didn't see Stuart's uh, original message that oh, he sent via Patreon. Oh, no kidding. The message was there before we did the show? <laughs> no. The message was there after we did the show, but um, uh, oh, th- th- then we've done several, <laughs> several, several, several addenda since then. I see. Before Stuart emailed me and said, oh, hey, here's a Patreon message I left you a while back. I thought you were going to say... Yeah, he left a message at the Patreon two months before we did the show. He going, says he's found the bell. You guys don't <laughs> know about. Yeah, please. Uh, time is a flat circle, so please start sending corrections on future shows. Whatever you do. Uh, apparently, in that show, you mentioned was I may have been because of my mentioning that I unaccountably bought a grandfather clock new instead of going to an estate sale. Right, you and did you, say that, and you started talking about how pianos are immensely affordable because the world is producing used pianos or dead dead former piano owners, to put it another way, faster than it's producing new prospective piano owners. Right. Uh, have you ever, and you were saying that you should always, just, you can, you know, you can get a piano for nothing. Is that, is that the case? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think, wait a minute. I mean, uh, let's see right now. If I go on my local Craigslist here, Craigslist. This is exciting. This is happening in real time. This and is, I put this is in a David Letterman bit from 1983. I put in piano and uh, not specifying grand or otherwise, just a just piano, the word piano. Takes a minute. Here is a uh, a, a very nice parlor piano for $350. Here's a, a similarly serviceable one for $450. Here's a Absolutely killer two-tier organ that says um, 
$20 needs to be gone in one hour. <laughs> that was posted two hours ago. Or what happens? <laughs> I don't know. Here's a here's another parlor piano for 200 bucks. Here's a free piano. Here's another free piano. Here's a piano where we'll pay you. Here's a third free piano. And these are all like very nice. Uh, these are, also, these are all within a block of here. <laughs> one of these is, it looks like a 19th century piano. A lot of these are mid-century pianos. Whoa, that one's cool. So it's, it's been spray painted silver. So the point is never go to that Free. place in the, that big store in the mall with the fancy no. the fancy grands. Do they still have those in malls? Maybe not. Uh, well, there's still that one downtown, I think. This one's $25 and it says, needs to be painted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your piano does not need to be painted, sir or ma'am. Here's one for $400. I mean, all of these are... are um, you know, spinet pianos, upright pianos that are that are not like full, not the sure. kind you'd see in a in a in a tavern. But, but you know, most people who want a piano at home are imagining a little upright. Yeah, they don't have room for a, a baby grand in their in their uh, common room. Uh, this one is this one is oh holy moly! This is like well, and see, this one's like a converted player piano. Basically, you could fill your house with pianos. For free, because most of these are free. Should we do it? Should we just go drive around your neighborhood with a truck? <laughs> Can and, you uh, imagine how many pianos? Okay, now here's a Yamaha Baby Grand for 9500 That's the first piano that's over $400. And I think that's probably reasonable. Those are beautiful pianos. Sure. I mean, if you want a company to give you a motorcycle and a piano... I would go Yamaha Yamaha's the way I to go. I don't want a Steinway motorcycle, and I don't want to... Triumph piano. A lot of Casio keyboards here. We could fill our house with those. Tell me, Ken, how many pianos you think you could fit in your house? Do I have to be able to walk between them or play them? If you were just filling up your living room with pianos. But what I'm saying is, can they be like Tetris, Tetris into my living room? No, you'd, they'd need to be playable. You'd need to, you'd need to be able to play them. Even if they're small uprights, uh, we have one, which is more than the number of good piano players we have in my house. So I feel like we're doing our part for the economy. Right. In my living room, I could probably get eight pianos in there. The per- Here's somebody that says they have a Kimball Louis Sixteenth baby grand piano, and they say, these sell from $30,000 to $85,000. We are not asking that. Only $29,000. <laughs> Make offer. I don't <laughs> think anyone's going to offer them. Did you ever hang out at the piano? If you walk by one of those fancy piano stores that used to have in malls, would you would you uh, sit and play a little ditty? No, I was terrified of those places that seemed like they were. They did seem like traps. Like if you would sit and play, the guy would come over and be like, "Hey, buddy." Yeah, just to walk into one, you'd you'd uh, you'd feel really bad not leaving there with a piano or two. And those were expensive pianos. I mean, as a kid, I would always go over and play until they oh, you would shooed me off. And I think my dad would just sit down and you know, play a door song or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as soon as the salesman came over, he'd be like, no, 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 got to go. We when, lived in Korea for many years. When, <laughs> whenever I hear a kid sit down at a piano in a thrift store, I, I after they played three notes, I'm like, where is their parent? <laughs> 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 because... That is an assault on the senses. How are you going to know if you want that piano, John, unless you let your kid uh, plink and plonk a bit? You can hear immediately who is serious about buying that piano. 
Stuart uh, wanted us to know, given the the abundance of used low-quality pianos out there, of a Royal Air Force tradition involving pianos. Do you oh. know about this? No. This is right up your alley, though. S- Stuart's wife is an F-15 Strike Eagle pilot. No. Which is, I mean, you can stop right there. That's a pretty good story already. <laughs> Adopt me. I guess at Royal Air Force squadron parties, there is a tradition of setting a piano afire. Okay. And... You know, it's apparently this happens because it's so easy to procure a a, a piano and put it out of its misery. It's <laughs> it's like a rescue piano. You go to a shelter and you get a piano and then you light it on fire. I hate this, but also love it. Do you have a Do you have a problem watching an instrument burn? In general, I've set fire to a guitar in my life at a wedding. Um. Wow. Isn't that a bad omen to burn a guitar at a wedding? No, because they asked me to play a song and, and I played a song to a drum machine, but I had my guitar all hooked up to a bunch of pedals and stuff and played this song to, you know, and then I did a thing and then I pulled out a, a can of lighter fluid and put my guitar down and it was feeding back and set it on fire. And then the person that owned the venue was not, very thrilled. Yeah, you didn't run that by the, that, that, the reception I was, center? I was down on my knees going like, ah! Uh, and so he was very nervous. There's a wonderful video of him coming and kicking the can of lighter fluid away from the burning guitar because I had just set it down <laughs> right next to the guitar because I was busy. I got to say, in this story, I'm kind of on the side of <laughs> Phil. He was like, not you. No. No, it was, uh, it was, that this was at Consolidated Works. I do have a hard time watching, oh yeah, yeah. I do have a hard time watching, uh, there's a, I was watching the new Andrew Garfield musical about the Broadway composer Jonathan Larson, and the big epic emotional climax of the movie is him going out into Central Park and in pouring rain playing a song on a beautiful grand piano at the, um, uh, you know, whatever that little amphitheater by Belvedere Castle, I think is called. Yeah. And it's just a downpour and he's out there with his instrument and I'm thinking, no, somebody put a tarp over that piano. Like that's, that piano's never going to be the same again. You can't just do that. I'm like the guy kicking away the lighter fluid from Andrew Garfield. There are so many pianos behind, you know, decrepit behind warehouses. The problem with burning a piano is after the wood part burns, there's an awful lot left of a piano that won't burn. Yeah, but if you're a military organization, you got to do something with it. You don't care about ecology, and you have access to uh, to whatever demolition equipment you would need at that point to cart off the corpse. I just worry that there's a creek behind this military base that's full of the the metal parts of old pianos. Uh, Stuart says there is no. Uh, clear, definitive history as to how the tradition started. But the lore, the RAF war, is that sometime between the wars in the 20s or the 30s, the RAF was actually requiring its pilots to take piano lessons with the idea that this is the kind of finger dexterity that makes for a better pilot. Plus, you know, the culture of... This goes with the culture of the Air Force. Sure. You know, we're the ones taking piano lessons, not like the grunts. (laughs) Yeah, that really endears them to the Marines. To this day. How are your piano lessons? Uh, and at one, air, at one airfield, there happened to be a piano that caught fire, and the lessons stopped by necessity. Oh, And at that point, every— to. Well, no, this one was happened to, but at that point, every other airbase realizes 
this is how we can get out of the stupid piano lessons. And an epidemic of, of piano arson results. Nice. What a great story. He Thank said, you for keeping us safe. Stewart's wife's squadron is actually one of the three RAF Eagle squadrons that was originally composed of American expat pilots that went to Europe before Pearl Harbor to, to fight in the Blitz. The oh, pilots oh, okay. were later pardoned and the squadrons were repatriated to the U.S. And sure. he wonders if this is a tradition that was brought home to the uh, United States Air Force, but I have never heard of such a thing. I invite, no, me either. I invite all of our high-ranking Air Force listeners, of which we know we have many, yes. to let us know if which keyboard instruments, if any, are burned in the uh, American Air Force. We do have F-15 pilots who listen, but uh, none that fly F-15s for the Royal Air Force. So bravo. Tip, tip. Stuart also says, in regarding the uh, great Diamond hoax episode, there is actually, I guess we talked about allotropes of carbon, and he says there is an equation to model the fact that diamonds can decay into graphite. A diamond oh. is not forever. Oh. There are over a thousand years, it is possible for diamonds to decay into graphite. Whoa, bummer to all of the people that really spent a month's wages on their wedding ring. Or a real perk to people who are looking for a pencil right now uh-huh. and can't their, find one. Their but, grandmother's 1,000-year-old diamond. Is- and have a few thousand <laughs> years to wait uh, for, uh, for a diamond pencil. Entry 038.JE1543, certificate number 26351. The Amargosa Opera House. Erica brought to our attention uh, one of her favorite Death Valley stories. Do you know the story of the sad story of the Death Valley Germans? No. A, a family of four German tourists um, rent a Plymouth Voyager minivan at LAX in 1996 and drive around Southern California then to Paradise, Nevada, then drive to Death Valley and mysteriously disappear. Mm. The the van is discovered uh, months later with in no Antarctica. people. In, no, uh, in, in an extremely remote part of Death Valley where you would not expect or indeed be recommended to drive a Plymouth, a Plymouth Voyager minivan. Uh, just found by a ranger looking for like drug labs in this in this godforsaken part of the park um and no sign of the family which meant what like all kinds of crazy theories that they had faked their disappearance and had disappeared that there was a uh if you fake your disappearance and don't disappear, <laughs> you are doing it wrong. I guess they had faked their deaths in Death Valley, but returned there there was some evidence that they had possibly returned to Europe somehow. Um, Clearly, not by minivan. Not in the. That's not the. It's not the best way to get to Europe. <laughs> let's uh, let's pause it. And there's an interest online you can read, and I went down a rabbit hole reading the interesting case from the amateur local search and rescue folks who develop, over the succeeding decade plus developed various theories of what could have happened, and finally came up with a novel theory. Ufos. That, <laughs> no, a, a Germans wandering off theory okay. that the authorities had not considered. You know, what if they had seen this military base on their maps, realized that was the only way they could get to water. They had flat tires in their van because they shouldn't have been out there. Um, in Germany, military installations 
have well-patrolled fences. Right. They didn't realize they were just heading for a vast, empty, barbed wire nothing because it's a little different on this continent. And uh, these guys in 2009 investigated the three ways they could have walked toward the military base and in just a crazy remote part of the park, just a part of the park where nobody had probably been since then. And the only other things they had found was like a beer, a beer bottle from the 1940s. Uh-huh. Uh, they suddenly came across a wallet and then a jacket and finally, oh, no, they and finally, found found, finally found human remains and were able to... All four of them? Uh, at first two, and I think it's now believed that... They ate the other two. <laughs> I think it's now believed that what were originally thought to be two people's remains were four. Um, oh, because two of the four were children. Two of the four were children, and there was never an official update. But anyway, if you're interested in the story of the Death Valley Germans, the reason why I wanted to point out Erica's uh, missive to us is that in a recent addenda, we wondered what the time difference is between a Tuesday show and a Thursday show. Oh. Remember the length we were wondering sure, about the we, length? Well, you know, you and I dispute this all the time because every time you get done with a show, you're like, ha ha, ah, a, a nice short, short show. And I'm like, no, it's, it seems the same length as mine. It seemed long over here <laughs> and I was listening to it. Uh, Erica has actually run the numbers. Okay. Let's get to the bottom of this story. Erica calls herself a board programmer. Thank uh, you, Erica. She has run the numbers. My shows now average one hour, three minutes, and 16 seconds, whereas your shows average one hour, four minutes, and 26 seconds. So your shows are a whopping 71 seconds or 1.85% longer. Averaged over 400 shows? How many shows have we? Yeah, over, uh, and what would that be? Uh, Over four years. So, yeah, the data clearly shows. That's pretty impressive. Isn't that crazy (laughs) that there's only a 70-second difference? Yes, that um, is over 200 shows each. Mm-hmm. It's great that because I would have said, if you'd said, what is our average? I would say 106. I keep that in my head, 106. When we get to 106, I'm like, there it is. And you're always like, God, I wish it was 58. <laughs> I think it should be shorter than 58. 45 you want in your perfect world. That would be my dream. I'm So my, that's my vow to you, Eric. I'm going to get those numbers down. I want... I want more of us than a seventy-one second gap. But in order to have a forty-five-minute show, we would have to we would have to stop doing the show at thirty-five minutes to account for the ten minutes after the show that we keep doing the show. Well, the main problem is we'd have to start doing the show earlier because much as as slow as possible began with a two-year rest played on that organ with no notes at all. The omnibus often starts with a lengthy. Uh, uh, preamble preamble yeah there you go well they're Overture. Off, the, the, the preamble is often 90 minutes long what do you mean <laughs> and some people prefer the preamble i feel really bad now to learn about the myers the webbers and the rimkuses uh i just think it's bad that they're called the death valley germans yeah i mean they were in death valley alive for presumably they accomplished many things in their lives they spent maybe two to three unsuccessful days in death valley before things turned on them I don't think we should call them the Death Valley Germans. No. What would you call them? The uh, Germany Germans. The, 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 the accomplished featuring, Germans and their children. Featuring Death Valley. Entry 445.IS0526. Certificate number 43944. The fastest bicyclist. 
the core of this show was that a bicycle can go just unimaginably fast if it's drafting behind some kind of wind cutter lead vehicle pace car of some kind and if it has enough torque yes and if it's apparently being pedaled by a woman because no man has been able to equal her her time that's right uh todd was annoyed that we did not mention the most iconic uh scene of bicycle drafting in all of art i stopped listening after todd was annoyed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> He's even more annoyed now then. In all of art? In, all, in any field of human culture or endeavor. The most famous bicycle drafting event. Yes. Let me think. Is it a Marcel Duchamp canvas? Is it a delightful uh, uh, Mozart adagio? Is it something from the movie Breaking Away? It is, in fact, something no, from the movie really? Breaking Away. I got there! Yeah! <laughs> in one guess. It's the Italians are coming scene from Breaking Away. Of Me. course. Do you, do you remember Breaking Away fondly? Good movie. Yeah, Breaking Away. The Italians are the villains. If, uh, I mean, well, actually, the college kids are the villains, but the Italians are the other villains. Well, our, our hero idolizes the Italian cycling team of, uh, I don't know, is it Cin- Cinzano, I think? Yeah, and, they're, and they end up... They end up uh, spoiler alerts. Well, they come to town. It's it's big news that yeah. this big European cycling team is coming to. And he rides up next to him like, "Hey guys!" And they're like, "Get out!" A here. truck is a truck is coming down the highway with their. I mean, I'm not sure if it's clear in the movie. He hears they're coming. He hears the Italians are coming. He heads out on a bike, and somehow he gets behind a semi truck marked with their team logo on the interstate, presumably full of all their their bikes and equipment. And he starts drafting behind this truck at 50 miles an hour. And the driver is delighted and keeps speeding up to 60. I think it gets up to 65. Uh, and Dennis Christopher keeps pace behind this car because you can. Yeah. Um, that was not, in fact, Dennis Christopher. There was a, a local Bloomington cyclist who was asked, do you think you could pedal behind a truck on interstate? And he was like, well, 60 might be pushing it, but I'll give it a shot. And he got there. Yeah, usually it's the kid, it's the actors in the movie doing their own doing their own cycling. But this was a they needed a stunt double to do it on the fruit. I think the scene ends with a cop pulling them over, and uh, and he he pulls over the truck. The cycle gets away. I have a breaking away obsessed friend who actually I think has been to Bloomington, Indiana, multiple times just to see the amazing <laughs> sights and sounds of this was the house where Dennis Quaid's character lives well, or, or whatever. It's like Bob Dylan. Telling Val Kilmer that he wants a he wants to hear him do all the young guns bits. If I had the actors from Breaking Away right here, I would write. There's no check too big that I wouldn't write to hear them do <laughs> all their Breaking Away dialogue. Is Paul Dooley still alive? I want to have Paul Dooley come be my dad. Well, let me ask you this because I this came up in conversation the other day. I'm you know I'm making a list of movies to show my ten year old as every parent tries to do. It always and fails. I thought it does every time. Sweetheart, you're gonna love this Marx Brothers movie. Um that actually worked on my kids. Silent comedy worked on my kids and and like the Marx Brothers. But uh, I feel uh, I, so breaking away was on my list and I didn't know if there was any troubling material that might affect a young girl at the age of eleven. I remember it being pretty I mean it's not it's not squeaky clean Vestron family home video. No, because there are fair. there are bad people, but she and knows there might all be swears because it's a uh, because nineteen eighties teen movies were wall to wall profanity. But there's no boobs. 
I believe it is 100% boob free. Okay. I mean, it's not Indiana, like Indiana is a flat state, John. Yep, that's right. <laughs> oh, that's good. So, oh, that's rich. Uh, but I do not predict that a a non-cycling obsessed kid today will be into breaking away. You don't think so? Uh, no. Triumph over adversity? Townies versus uh versus You know what kids hate today? Kids? Adversity and the idea that effort triumphs over it. Oh, they do hate that. They don't want to see that. No, they just want to be gifted, all of them. Field of Dreams. Not like us. Field of Dreams, yeah. <laughs> Gen X didn't get everything handed to it on a silver platter from the post-war economic boom. I think maybe uh, Field of Dreams is the way to go. It's oh, you a, think that that's a, that's a good kid-friendly movie, Field of Dreams? No adversity. Just uh, 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 magic appears. You build it. They come. You make a small effort, and the universe provides you uh, magic untold. Great. That's what. That's the lesson to teach her. That great. I have really been trying to disabuse her of that idea, but <laughs> fat chance, sweetheart. You have to. I know a small effort seems like it should produce everything. Clean your room, <laughs> and the ghosts of all your favorite Star Wars characters will come. The Force ghosts will come hang out with you and, and do lightsaber duels. Entry 1421.DE2609. Certificate number 53240. Welsh Patagonia. Did we get yelled at a lot by... By Welshmen and Argentines? By Welshmen, Argentines, and Nazis? Even worse, uh, Madeline Langle fans. Wrinkle and time heads. The, the wrinkle heads are mad at us. The wrinklies. At first, before you said heads, I was like, Madeline Langle is mad at us? <laughs> if still alive? <laughs> what? Beverly Cleary's ghost is furious at us? Uh, the uh, We did some hand-waving to other historical antecedents to the Welsh... Settlers of Argentina, which included a mythical uh, Welsh prince named Maddock, who oh, yeah. in, in some legends traveled across the Atlantic. Sure, Maddock, who, who came and and a whole uh, a whole tribe of Native Americans speak Welsh. The idea being that um, even the Welsh, the it's it's insulting. Actually, it's a, it's one of the worst colonialist ideas that even the Welsh. Could could take over any other race, in, in, insulting to the Welsh and the Native Americans alike. Yes, yeah. it presupposes that the Welsh are the least promising seafarers that Europe has to offer, <laughs> and it says that even they, you know, no no uh, indigenous culture would be the match for them. What's crazy is that Wales is bound on three sides by the sea, and yet. Uh, the Portuguese had a much better record. Maybe it's, it's just... because Ireland's in the way. Yeah, it's cold and windy. Ireland's just sitting there. No good harbors. No matter where you go, you'll probably hit Ireland. Why even leave? Why leave? We keep hitting Ireland. The uh, But no, we mentioned that there's also... I, I, I had a childhood memory of reading a, a confusing Wrinkle in Time sequel that hinges on a, uh, a Welsh-speaking country in South America. But I think I... I, I was a little fuzzy on the plot, and Jonathan writes to correct us that the uh, the Welsh country in South America in a swiftly tilting planet is not related to the this 19th century colonization. Uh, in fact, it actually goes back all the way to Prince Maddock. Whoa! And so the as the this novel, of course, has a time traveling unicorn. Sure, which is what you want. If your novel doesn't have one. And if you have a unicorn and it can't travel in time, 
light it on fire and, and go to Craigslist. If you, if you can travel in time and haven't figured out how to get a unicorn to go with you, what are you doing? Uh, he points out that um, they travel in time to visit lots of different people kind of in this Maddox lineage, um, one of whom is a 19th century author named Maddox, and then the MacGuffin of the plot, one of whom is the dictator of this Welsh uh, South American nation who is named Mad Dog. Yeah. That's kind of his Maddox connection. Mm-hmm. He is, uh, <laughs> I'd forgotten this, the movie actually has some Cuban Missile Crisis style nuclear confrontation that is happening. Wait, there's a movie of Sorry, a Swifty Tilting Planet? No, this book, did I say movie? <laughs> yeah. This, it's just so vivid in my head. This book, the MacGuffin of this book, is a Cuban Missile Crisis style scenario centered around a Welsh-speaking nation in South America. <laughs> So the so the premise is the Welsh the have Welsh, nukes? The Welsh in South America have the bomb. <laughs> That's not who you want to give the bomb to. How did they even get it? <laughs> when I pointed this out to Jonathan, he, he says, well, the book kind of hand waves it. Um, the book begins with the president calling our characters and being like, I just want you to know the, the Cuban Missile Crisis is about to start in Welsh Patagonia, so... Um, kiss your rear ends goodbye. Hmm. He, apparently, he's doing personalized calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, ring, ring. Who is it? The president. Well, if you remember <laughs> A Wrinkle in Time, their dad is some kind of highly placed. Oh, right, right, right. Government, top secret government uh, nuclear or theoretical physicist. And the president is always calling our, our top physicists. My daughter, I think, still believes that it's possible the president would call me. She definitely thinks the president might call you. If the president calls me, it's going to to be to tell me I'm not doing enough pull-ups in my in my fitness <laughs> test and he knows it too soon the president in the book here's the dialogue the president feels that this time mad dog branzio is going to carry out his threat and then we'll have no choice but to use our anti-ballistic missiles so we're going to nuke the Welsh new. Patagonia no no our anti-ballistic missiles so it's just a missile against a missile i see we're just going to be using patriot missiles yeah we're going to be shooting their dumb welsh South American missiles but have, out of the but sky. But they have ICBMs? I don't, like, if, if we're worried... Come on. How would a country that small get a missile, asks... Uh, uh, what's her name? Meg's brother, Sandy. Uh, Vespugia... First of all, the, neither Welsh nor Spanish. Vespugia is no smaller than Israel. And oh, Branzio has powerful friends. But named after... Amerigo Vespucci, and also no smaller than Brazil? Oh, he said Israel. No smaller than Israel. And Branzio has... So the implication is, well, the Soviets will intercede on behalf of... And hey, if Israel's got the bomb, why not a Welsh-speaking South American enclave? Yeah, Americans support Israel, and the Russians famously support the Welsh. (laughs) So so this was my nightmare as a kid, that this is how the world was going to end, is the president was going to call and be like, well... (laughs) Some Welsh generalissimo has the bomb. Sorry, not much we can do. Uh, and your dad would say, "Well, we used to live in Korea for for a time." The book was published exactly. <laughs> the book was published in seventy eight. So Jonathan assumes that this is a parallel universe where Kennedy kept the missiles out of Cuba, but Carter was weak on the Soviets and the Welsh apparently, <laughs> and let them move right in. Yeah, because they're. A great threat to America to be in Patagonia. Yeah, the thing about Cuba is it's, you know, Florida could kick it. What are we going to do with these missiles menacing us from— There's really no part of South America where we would be that 
you know, would be as worried about a Welshman with a bomb. No, like Colombia, maybe. I don't know if it says, I don't know if we know what part of South America Vespuja is in. Maybe we are supposed to think that it's a lot closer to the Caribbean than it is to Argentina. Yeah, but there's not really, there's not really many places. And oh, you know what? It, it's probably like one of the uh, Surinams. Yeah, one of the Surinams, the Guianas. Suriname was a Guiana. <laughs> we call them the Surinams around here. Even old Suriname was once <laughs> new. Sur- no, even old Guiana was once new Suriname. Entry 1086.PR1506. Certificate number 46804. Rojas v. Marcos. In this entry, you mentioned the Brown Shoe Navy. Yes. A phrase I had never heard before. I guess at one point... The Black Shoe Navy versus the Brown Shoe Navy. And what does that mean? It's higher ranking officers? Uh, Pilots versus uh, people that that are in the boats. And is Brown Shoe the... That's the... That's the prestigious. Well, one? those are the pilots. They would say it was prestigious, but the I see. But the uh, the destroyer captains probably don't think so. Uh, I think you had said that the Brown Shoe Navy uh, was discontinued. Yeah, in 1976. But what Michael points out is that there was a petition from naval aviators. Boy, doesn't that just fit the bill? Re- you know, requesting the reinstatement of. Uh, of traditional brown shoes. <laughs> we want to wear our brown shoes. Oh, we already bought them. <laughs> and in 1985, huh? the Navy resurrected brown shoes. Oh, I didn't know that. How fun. He's, Michael uh, says there was a similar thing in the Air Force where the pilots complained about the A2 leather flight jacket. Oh, God, I know that. And then the and then the Navy got got in on it, too. All the, all the fighter pilots now walk around in those Top Gun jackets because... Tom Cruise looks so cool in them. Yeah, they said it was to commemorate the Air Force's anniversary, but it must have been to commemorate the release of Top Gun, right? Well, and, and also there were there were um, there were they brought back the Ray Ban aviators. They'd been using these little square aviators all through the Vietnam War, but Tom Cruise wore the World War II aviators, and of course Ray Ban loved that. And then the pilots all started wearing them too. Did you know that the Army is transitioning to a new uniform based on the World War II, the Greatest Generation era? I did know that. I, did, I had missed this. What do you think of the new... I'm trying to see a before and after here. I support it un- entirely because after the, after the Gulf War, all of the services transitioned to the, you know, to the BDUs, the, their pajamas, basically, yeah. camouflage pajamas. And... When you get on an airplane, there's no tailoring. No, you get on an airplane, and and there are soldiers, active duty soldiers, that come on, and they're wearing these shapeless digital camouflage pajamas. It's always like, oh man, didn't you have? Don't you have a dress uniform? At least you got. I know you got to board first, but and they're like, this is a dress uniform. You know, it's got a belt. Uh, <laughs> so bringing bringing back these like Eisenhower jackets, they haven't gone that far, but the um, leather service jacket is coming back. All personnel may wear the leather service bomber jacket with the Class B AGSU Army well, General Army Green Service uniform. Well, that also feels a little weird. Like, it, the, you think it, it should be with rank? Well, it, yeah, it should be with rank. And if you're a pilot, like, like, don't not everybody gets to wear a leather jacket. What was great about World War II is that there were so many uniforms. Like every branch of the service, every Army General got to have his own his tailor come up with. Something new, you know, MacArthur's 
iconic hat. Nobody else had one of those. Or the pipe. The well, you could you could buy a corn cob pipe anywhere you looked, but no, no I think it's not these, regulation. I think these new uniforms are cool, and I think soldiers probably think they're cool because they are cool. We've reached the end of the celebrity uh, officer, so it's not like you could even pick an accessory. I mean, any like, to the degree that David Petraeus or somebody, or who's the guy that had the affairs? Like, I guess those guys did not have any kind of fun. Those guys did not try to bring in. Uh, any kind of fun eyewear or anything. They're all bureaucrats. What's weird is there's something about the there's something about the hat in the in the redone uniform that looks wrong to me. It's not quite the right hat. But otherwise and I know that, you know, that guys modified their hats in World War II. It's not that. It's that these hats are just a little bit I don't know, Third Reiki. Not, I'm not uh, the the hat needs a little bit of a redesign, but the uh, but the uniform itself totally great. The more bling on it, the better. The thing is that a lot of officers used to come from wealthy families, and they they would insist upon they'd get their uniforms made at Brooks Brothers, and so they'd show up. You know, it was just like a general. If you look at Master and Commander, every person on that boat has a different version of a uniform. Because you they all went, brought it from home. Yeah, you went to your tailor and you're like, "I'm uh, I've joined the navy," or pro- because you joined the navy when you were nine. I that, joined the navy. I've I'm going to be a bosun's mate. <laughs> oh, but you mean the turkey as big as me? And uh, but that was true in World War II. All the all the rich officers had their own fancy uniforms. It was just you only got issued a uniform if you couldn't afford to have one made. So you want a. Uh you want a service full of Winchesters, and instead you keep seeing Hawkeye and BJ on the plane. <laughs> yeah, Hawkeye's just there. He doesn't even wear his insignia. Button your shirt, Hawkeye. At, at least, you know, at least Winchester, well, and Frank Burns, you know, they always dress to impress. We got, a, we got a heartwarming postscript to this episode from Allison. At some point, I, you said that if you were upgraded to first class on a plane, you would say, do you remember what, you're, what you said you would say if you were upgraded to first class? Uh, no. Oh, must be in the front row. Oh, of course. <laughs> from uh, the, the beer commercial? Uh, yeah, from uh, from Bob Euchre's. Bob, but what is, what is that a commercial for? Is it like Bud Light or something? Uh, no. Or is well, it not? Was it, or was it Miller Light? It was a light beer. It's a beer commercial, right? And he was like, oh. So that was a real Proustian uh, Madeline for Allison from Maine, whose dad used to say that every time they got a good parking spot. Nice. You know, pull up in front of the mall and be like, oh, must be in the front row because there, there was a prestige parking spot. And she didn't know that it was a reference <gasps> oh. to anything. She just thought her, like, dad had a funny thing he said. Oh, and so she was like, what? And her dad's now been gone for 20 years. And when she heard you say that thing, she was like, wait, what? How do, how do John <laughs> and Ken both know that thing my dad used to say? Uh, my dad is forever in my late 40s to me, and your podcast has real dad vibes for me. That is, boy, truer words were never oh, spoken. It's not just it you, Allison. Us dads here, just dadding it up for you. But there are things that I have often thought were funnier until I realized that they were a reference to something. Yeah. Like uh, just something that I thought was just a random non sequitur in airplane turns out to be a... Uh, I think people today see that... Um, but Bob never has a second cup of coffee at home. Right. And they're like, oh, that's funny. But they don't know that that's the same woman from the U-Band commercial. <laughs> you know, so. Ancient Chinese secret, huh? It's actually the stupidest kind of joke, the uh, the, the the pop culture catchphrase quote. Um, 
But I'm glad we brought back good memories of your dad, Allison. Thank you for sending us a picture of a lighthouse. Allison, you've surely looked it up, but, you know, the point of the commercial was Bob Euchre was sitting in the baseball stadium, but it wasn't actually his seat, and the usher came along and said, you got to move. You got to get out of that seat. And he and, thinks he's being bumped well, up. he doesn't think. He's, he, t- he looks around at all the people going, shaking their heads at him, and he goes, oh, must be in the front row, you know. He's just putting on a good putting face. Putting on a good face. I see. Because you can't keep Bob Euchre down. Entry 915.EC1212. Certificate number 41769. Penguin Classics. Two notes from Jeff on this show, which I thought were pretty fun. Um, in a reference to how it's easier to read a classic novel when you have a book club, mm-hmm. we compared it to... The kind of support system you need to climb Mount Everest. You know, you need bears and a base camp. You can't just parachute in. Jeff uh, says, au contraire. I parachuted onto the top of Mount Everest. In 1932, I think, uh, someone named Maurice Wilson hatched a plan to fly a gypsy moth from England to Nepal. Now, that's a kind of airplane. Yes, he is not gonna, actually going <laughs> to hop aboard a moth. Uh, I don't know what a gypsy moth is. It's you don't? A, it, oh, it's a very cute little uh, biplane. It's a, yeah, I guess it would have to be a biplane at the time. He was going to crash land it on Everest and walk to the summit. This is a guy who had no mountaineering experience. Um, and he was like, well, obviously I can't get all the way up Everest, so I'm going to cheat. I'm going to crash a little plane into Everest and then just walk to the top, suckers. Right. Unfortunately, it's easy he, enough. he didn't know how to fly a plane. Oh. Also, you can't take a gypsy moth... From England to Nepal. Well, you can't do that, but also it would exceed its operational ceiling, I think, by a fair margin. Jeff says that he did manage to earn a pilot's license and then flew to India, then snuck into Nepal, then snuck into Tibet, and then tried to scale Everest from the north. Um, But his luck ran out there. He died on the mountain. Oh, no, really? Possibly due to the fact that his only prep for the ascent was basically some day hiking in Wales. So, wait, he crashed on the mountain? Yeah, his plan to fly into Everest, I don't know how high he got, but his plan to, his plan to fly up from wherever you can take off in Tibet up to Everest and crash land, on, crash land somewhere worked. He just didn't get very far. His body was found a few years later and was buried in a crevasse. A book was recently written called The Moth and the Mountain about his ill-advised ascent. How is this not a thing that we already knew about and all of us knew about? Maybe we can do an omnibus about it and then uh, we'll just sound smart and we won't know that like some first somebody wrote a book and then Jeff tipped us off to the book. Huh. We, and also in that show we talked about uh, kind of the funny modern translations of the Bible or maybe Homer using the idea of putting extreme teen slang into new translations of works to make them accessible. Right. Uh, Jeff wanted us to, he sent me a link to an NPR piece on a new translation of Beowulf by Maria Devana Headley. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Yeah. (laughs) Beowulf generally begins with listen or lo, uh, lo, the spear Danes glory through splendid achievements, the folk king's former fame we have heard of, or in this new version, bro, tell me we still know how to talk about kings. In the old days, everyone knew what men were. Brave, bold, glory-bound. Only stories now, but I'll sound the Spearday song, Hoarded for Hungry Times. So she replaces Behold or Listen or whatever it usually is. Low, in this case, with Bro. And her take is that uh, that is how it would have sounded at the sure. time. Bro. Bro-dog. 
it would not have sounded lofty. It would have been the kind of the, the cadence of, of men drinking and swapping stories. What's up? I'm the strongest and the boldest and the bravest and the best. Yes, I mean, I may have bathed in the blood of beasts, netted five foul ogres at once, smashed my way into a troll den and come out swinging, gone skinny dipping in a sleeping sea and made sashimi of some sea monsters. Humble brag. Anybody who Fs with the gates, bro, they have to F with me. (laughs) Hello. It sounds like like an Adventure Time script. I mean, epic poetry was made to be read out loud, so it would have been, it would have kind of been a bravado-filled oral performance like a like a rap battle it would there's a case that 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 is the vibe you should get and not not kind of the fusty odor you get from from a written english yeah if you said uh yeah right he has done his worst but the wound will end him to say like he messed up yo but he's gonna die he got made sashimi of himself (laughs) Uh, it turns out the gypsy moth has an operational ceiling of 14,000 feet, and Everest, as we know, is over 20,000 feet. So he still would have had 6,000 feet to ascend. The last 16,000 feet. The hardest 6,000 feet. Entry 709.2P0115. Certificate number 25974. Ledger art. Uh, I'm just looking now at a, a Blackfoot tribe member named Justin who sent us a copy of some beautiful ledger art he owns, which is just fantastic. Um, now, why did you not send me that? I'll send you this right now. I didn't. I, but I, think, but I mean, why didn't you send it to me before? <laughs> I'm just seeing it now. I'm oh, realizing okay. I, right. I need to reply to Justin and thank him for sending us a copy of. Um, this beautiful Terence Gardapi uh, artwork. You but, know, my friend that owns the Ledger Art listened to the show, and he complimented us a lot. He said, I learned a lot about Ledger Art that I didn't already know, and I own Ledger Art. We got an amazing offer from a uh, a Pueblo listener and artist named Adam, who, uh, you know, he congratulates you on how you treated the issues because he also deals with that conflict between native traditions in art and And more modern takes. And it sounds like that's, you know, that's kind of a source of tension, I think, when it comes to some tribal art. Oh, this ledger art from Justin is awesome. Isn't that great? Yeah. And he says uh, he would love to try to transform some omnibus show notes into ledger art. He's a big fan of omnibus and uh, i sent it to you and you pointed out that like our show notes are kind of like messy and dense what's great about the ledger paper that they use is that it's both 100 years old and so the ink has faded but also you know they're ledgers so there's notation but there's also a lot of blank space whereas our show notes i mean you are yours are very neat and tidy and mine are scrawled but we both fill up the page but i mean it's still just ballpoint pen like if you were to do something in bold colors on top of that i feel like it would still pop maybe yeah that's true i'm trying to find your actual ledger art notes here and maybe we should send them on oh that's a really good idea ledger art ledger art on ledger art uh here's rojas v marcos that means it's here somewhere this is right around the right time as longtime listeners will know for many months 
in the early days of Omnibus, I would clear up all the show notes that were lying on the floor around our table, and I didn't know what to do with them, and I figured they were worth keeping, but then after a while, they stacked up, and I was like, God, get these out of here, and I threw them all away. So all of the great... Uh, all of the great um, original show notes, hmm, they didn't survive. Breaks my heart a little. I'm looking through a lot of your notes. And I don't, but I'm going to take a look because I think maybe we should send. Yeah. Okay. We I agree. Send Adam our notes because what else could we? What else do we have that we could? We could have him. Um, uh, what's the word? Embellish for us. I, well, the only other thing would be all of the um, 19th century ledgers that we receive from fans. People have sent us similar things. How about that list of borax, uh, that list of things you can make out of borax? Yeah, or somebody that, sent me some, future show, uh, some right? actual, like, uh, like union sheets from Stevedore's unions in the 1930s. Uh, that would be perfect for ledger art. I wonder where I put those in my vintage stationery collection. Well, Adam, if you're listening, that's a great offer. We will uh, we will get in touch with you. What an honor that would be. Yeah. Yeah. Find those notes. They're right here somewhere. Entry 215PR0812. Certificate number 36799. Chindogu. These are whimsical Japanese inventions. Are, it turned out I loved these that are quite fashionable. There. One of the ones I liked the best was a, a you wear a T-shirt that divides your back into a grid, and you have a corresponding pad so that when you want someone to scratch your back, you can just show them B three or, or D four. The funny thing is, Chase points out that there is actually a patent held for that very invention by none other than Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Is, is uh-huh. an, it's an article in the Atlantic about. Uh, I guess they, they, the Atlantic was doing a running series on patents held by the rich and famous. Uh huh. And he uh, w- was trying to sell a itch locating T-shirt. That does this predate the Jindoku? I'm trying to see. Or what, is he like a patent infringer? He he patented it in 2005. So it may, I mean, this is the kind of idea that you would just think about anytime you had an itchy back. So I, my guess is it's parallel evolution. But uh, but he didn't patent this till 2005. And I don't know, do, does he have the idea that you would have a second duplicate pad? Oh, it's got a picture of a turtle. <laughs> what? The tur- He has a picture of a turtle where the turtle's back is, is divided into a grid each of which has a different number. But if you scratch a turtle's back, the turtle's not going to feel it. No, of all the of all the animals in the animal kingdom, the turtle is the least likely to have an itchy back. Oh, wait a minute. No, think about if you had a shell oh, it's and like you've got an itchy back. It's like when you the the little thing they doctors give you when you have a cast to try to scratch under. What a nightmare. My theory is that when Sofia Coppola went to Japan with Bill Murray to make Lost in Translation, she accidentally let the word slip about her dad's billion-dollar invention in Japan somewhere, and right. word got out. I think, I think the Chindogu are stealing from Francis. Oh, sure, of course. That seems more likely that the that the brilliant idea would belong to Francis Ford 
Coppola or yeah. Coppola. You know, who, you, you know who's always thinking of great things is just eighty-year-old Italian men. Yes, they are agreed. All, they're the great innovators <laughs> of our time. Thank God for them. Entry seven four three mt one three two five. Certificate number two seven eight three two. Trofim Lysenko. You explained winter wheat to me. Yeah. In this show. Did I do okay or is somebody mad? There's a clarification, let's say. Okay. Matt is a journalist and a farmer, so he loves the agricultural material. And it's even better, he's from Wheatley, Ontario. Good. So if anybody understands winter wheat, it's going to be somebody from Wheatley in snowy Ontario, right? Yes, and he's a he's a journalist farmer, one of the famous <laughs> Ontarian uh, <laughs> archetypes. Uh, winter wheat is planted in the autumn, as we said, after you know whatever your the soybeans or whatever it is you harvested in the uh, from summer. The idea is not that the seed sits in the soil. I guess the benefit is. The, the seed grows a little before winter, which gives you some surface growth and acts as an insulator. Okay. And I guess that is what helps because then, you know, the winter wheat can acclimate to the cold and then once spring comes... Um, it's ready to roll. It just comes right back. Like if if you didn't have insulation on the ground up there, you you know, or in cold climates, you'd get standing water or you'd get ice... And that's what the seeds don't like and might not be able to come back from, um, especially as you know in the spring if it comes and goes, if it freezes and thaws and freezes and thaws. So if you get some, if you get some surface growth from your winter wheat, then it's much easier on the crop when it grows in the spring. Awesome. Thank you. For, that's the and that's the word for. I feel like Garrison Keeler. And that's the word from Wheatley, Ontario. Where all the journalists are farmers, all the farmers are journalists, and all the children are above average. Entry 749.2S1114. Certificate number 35752. Wait a minute, I know that certificate number. I know that anywhere. It's mail trucks. I don't think our uh, again. our elephant preserve did not update us on uh, Essowitz doings this month, so we don't have an elephant update. But we do have uh, mail trucks have been big news this month because it's actually led to a not again. It's actually <laughs> led to a standoff between the executive branch, joined by the Environmental Protection Agency, and the United States Postal Service. Wow. Well, as we know the as we know from Ghostbusters, the EPA is the true villain of the American government. So, are we siding with the post office here? Yes, it's true. This agency has no dick. The uh, the Postal Service decided that its new fleet would be primarily gasoline powered. Oh, wait, this is a, a electric vehicle it dispute. Is. And now the EPA has uh, sent letters and wants to hold hearings saying um, it's time. Yeah, this you know the wheels of government have ground so slowly here that we're about to unveil this new fleet of gas-powered vehicles in the waning years of gas-powered vehicles. And of course, the um, Republican appointees who currently run the United States Postal Service are not super opposed to that. Sure. Louis DeJoy has said he's committed to having EVs make up ten fully ten percent. Ten percent of its next fleet. Not again. Which may have looked very forward-thinking years and years ago, but it's pretty lousy today. Um, 
and it's, you know, it's good for the Biden administration, I guess, to rattle some sabers and say, why shouldn't the postal fleet be 100% electric? But now there's contracts and it's, you know, it's a $6 billion government contract. 165,000 of these things are coming. Right, right. So now is the time, but it's actually, you know, mail trucks used to be cute and now this is a flashpoint in American politics and climate policy. So which side are we on? Which side is most compatible with Marxism? Well, I mean, we like the cute little trucks, but the cute little trucks are getting eight miles to the gallon or something, probably. <laughs> I mean, these things are not, they're not designed for fuel efficiency. Right. But they're designed for coolness. Uh, yeah, that's true. The the new des- the current ones get about eight miles to the gallon. These, guess what? 8.6. Oh, wow. That's right about what my 1979 <laughs> Suburban gets. <laughs> Yeah, a ginormous Mercury Grand Marquis will be delivering all your mail. (laughs) Every time I start my Suburban in this whole neighborhood, everybody in the neighborhood knows, and they all come out and applaud. That's nice that they're all so supportive of you. (laughs) It has that real lopey V8, 70s V8 sound. So there's no reason one of these goofy-looking new trucks could not be fully electrified. Feel free to contact your... Senator, don't yell at your mail carrier. It's no, not their fault. Contact your senator, as you should do, no matter what your problem or issue. Sure, because no matter what the problem is with America, if there's one thing I know, it's that the Senate can fix it. Yeah, just put your senator's office phone number in your speed dial and call him every day. The most efficient way to solve a problem, the United States Senate. <laughs> Cannot go wrong. Let me talk to Patty Murray. She's out of the office, ma'am. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 28. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the omnibus.